This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Happy Home is a home where prayer is really looked at as a valued exercise. It's so common, it's a prayer, when you're in a happy home, prayer doesn't feel awkward and forced and so memorized. Prayer is asked for and prayer is made and together, that's a happy home. A happy home is a home where there's just peace and there's quiet. It's a refuge, it's a place to run to from the world. The TV is not blaring in the background of a happy home, telling us how the Russians are invading Ukraine and how much blood there is on the ground. That's not a happy home. The home is a, a peaceful place. And, and that was the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And that was the home that Jesus resorted to in verse 17 when he left Jerusalem. I used to travel to London four times a year. I used to stay at a hotel in Regent's Park. And uh, I would fly over from the States and, and arrive at Heathrow Airport. And before I checked into the hotel from the airport, when I landed, I'd turn on my phone and I would call a brother and a sister, Phil and June Caldwell, who lived over in Brixton. Not a very nice area of London at all. But anyway, that's where they lived, more or less dilapidated place, but didn't matter. And they never knew when I was coming to London. And, and I'd just call them from the airport. I wasn't very nice, but that's what I did. And when I arrived, and it would take me about three hours to get my way from Heathrow over to their airport with a tube and a train and a taxi. And I finally made it there, humble home, rundown area, but a happy home. And I love that home. They're both gone on to be with the Lord now. I kind of miss it. But that brother and sister team were missionaries to the Jewish people. We knew them here. And June was amazing. She always would whip up some really good chicken dinner and bring it out. And she had a teapot, and the teapot was covered in a little jacket that she called a cozy. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and we talked, and we shared, and we prayed. And Phil would always share some scripture he was thinking about. 
which maybe wasn't a profound thought, but it was to him. I've been thinking, brother, how the Lord says he's in us. And he would just, that would be the subject. For example, been thinking about it all day. And I'd stay there at probably about 11 p.m. And, and then I would head off from my hotel. I'd check in the hotel around one in the morning. And those visits were memorable. I remember them even now. They were so refreshing. They were so memorable. They didn't have much. Phil, they were sending out literature to Jewish people in Russia and Europe and everywhere. And the place was just packed with literature. There wasn't even room for Phil to have a bed. He built, he built a wooden shelves and he slept on one of the shelves. <laughs> that was his bed. <laughs> but there was something about that place that I loved to go there. And if I had two invitations, one to go to Phil in June and the other to go to Buckingham Palace, no question where I'd go. I'd turn down the queen to go to Phil and June's happy home. And when I think of the Lord Jesus leaving Jerusalem and retiring to a home, I understand why he wanted to go to the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus and Bethany. And I can just picture something like that home, a Lazarus in the, as a happy home, just like the hymn says, the hymn says, happy the home when God is there and love fills every breast where one their wish and one their prayer and one their heavenly rest. Happy the home where Jesus' name is sweet to every ear, where children early speak his fame and parents hold him dear. Happy the home where prayer is heard and praise is wont to rise, where parents love the sacred word and all its wisdom prize. Lord, let us in our homes agree this blessed peace to gain. Unite our hearts in love to thee, and love to all will reign. And when it says in verse 17, he lodged there, we can picture how Jesus Christ really relaxed. He lodged, he relaxed, his guard was down. He no longer was challenged with questions in that home of who gave him the authority to do the things he did. He no longer was told to silence the children who were praising him. He no longer had to face the problem of the desecration of the temple. Now he's in the refuge of a happy home where he could really, verse 17, lodge there. May our homes be like that. Now, the day before all this, the day when he got to this happy home was really an exhausting day. Can't imagine how exhausting this was triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's coming into Jerusalem. While he's there, he's crying. His heart is broken. He's crying on the donkey as he looks at the city and says, boy, if you only knew, but you don't know. He goes in there. There's palm branches. There's singing. There's clothes being put down on the road. He comes into the temple. He makes the small whips. He cleanses the temple, drives out the money changers, the animal merchants, overturns the tables, overturns the chairs. Then all the healing starts of the blind and the lame. And then he has to deal with the challenges of the high priests and the scribes. And sadly, he has to leave. That's exhausting. All happened in one day. That was pretty exhausting. No wonder he was relieved to relax in the happy home of Lazarus and his sisters. And you would have thought that maybe the Lord, with such an exhausting day, would maybe just, uh, just grab a little extra sleep the next day, you know, catch up on a little rest. But that's not what happened. Because in verse 18, verse 18, it says, now in the morning, 
as he returned to the city. The Greek word for mourning there is pro, as in before, ia, which literally means in the first, pro, in the first. In other words, at the first light of the day. He is up and gone and out. It's so early at the break of day that he's coming into the city of Jerusalem. It shows, this shows the essential character of Christ because there was a very almost palpable passion in Christ. He was so anxious to return to the people in the city that it shows that if there's a person that moves one inch toward Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ moved one million miles to reach that person. And we get this feeling as we read this, we really get the picture that here that wild bulls couldn't keep Christ away from those that he was out to help. And those wild bulls were called the chief priests and scribes. And so it didn't matter if it was chief priests and scribes and with his own fatigue and his need for sleep and rest would not keep him away from the people that he was sent to help. And in verse 18, it's so surprising just to read the words in verse 18, he returned into the city. He returned to the city. I mean, what? You're returning to that city? The city that has just the day you have disrupted? by overturning all the tables and the chairs and driving out all the, the profiteers and angering the chief priests and the scribes, they can kill you. You're going back the next day to that city? It's so dangerous. Why are you going back? Why would you do that? Well, that's what it says in verse 18. He returned to the city. He was just like Paul. And when Paul returned to Jerusalem, which was very dangerous for Paul, and Paul knew it, and when he was going back to Jerusalem, and there were those who tried to stop him, don't go. But Paul said something about it. He said, I gotta go because he said, I'm bound in the spirit to return to Jerusalem. And he explained what that meant in Acts 20, verse 18. Acts 20, verse 18, it says, when they were come to him, Paul, he said unto them, you know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mine and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to both the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said that his spirit was like tied up and the only way for it to be released is if he went back to Jerusalem because Paul saw a course. He saw a course that was laid out in front of him. It was his life course that he saw and he saw that his life course was given to him by God and Paul's life course, course was very simple. Paul said, my life course is to show and to teach repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God means to see more and more in life that all sin is primarily against God. 
and that the reason for turning away from sin is to be able to turn toward God. That's repentance toward God. He said, the other part of my life course is faith toward Jesus Christ, which means to see more and more in life who Jesus Christ really is, to rely on him more and more in life, to see more and more in life what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and to rely more and more on the death and the blood of Jesus Christ to save from sin. And Paul said that his life course of showing and teaching repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ, it had a finish line. He saw it had a finish line. And he was determined to reach that finish line for his life. And Paul knew that his life course of showing and teaching repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ was not gonna be easy. But he was gonna be attacked along the way, but he pressed on because Paul saw himself like a runner and he saw himself as a runner crossing that finish line, smiling with hands up in the air, joyful, running that day, as he said in Acts 20, 24, Acts 20, 24, none of those things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He's got that one goal. His one goal is, finish my course with joy. He wants to run across and break that tape with his hands up in the air, just as smiling as he could be. That was the goal of Jesus Christ, to finish his course with joy. And that's why Jesus Christ walked right back into the lion den in Jerusalem with the same attitude of Paul. Jesus Christ could have said, Acts 20, 24, Acts 20, 24, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. So he's on the way now, he's going back to Jerusalem, and we read in verse 18 that he was hungry. He hungered, he was hungry, he was hungry. Think about that, shows how human Jesus Christ was. He was human to the level of, of getting hungry, like you and I. He was fully man. Even though he was God, he was fully man. He was subject to the same needs that you and I have. And when we think about that, that gives us a boldness to come to him in prayer for our needs. Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The feeling of our infirmities. But was all points, all points, tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a world of difference between us praying, Lord, I'm hungry and I need food, and us praying, Lord Jesus, you were hungry and you needed food, so you know how it feels like for me to now be hungry and to need food. World of difference in those two prayers. Prayer takes on a whole new dimension for us to pray, Lord Jesus, you were hungry, you were thirsty, you were tired, you were tempted, you were persecuted, you were disowned, you were betrayed, you felt pain, you were life-threatened, and finally you were killed, you died. And so now you know what I feel like. But when we see that he was hungry, we see something else. We said he left the house before breakfast. He was just that anxious to get back to the people that God had called him to help. And we see that also, he didn't take time to pack food. He didn't take time to pack some food, he's just so eager. He had an eagerness within him. 
It says in Psalm 69.9, Psalm 69.9, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. In other words, he's so consumed with doing the work of God that he feels like he's being eaten away inside. He feels like he's being dissolved from the inside out. He says, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Food was just not that important to him next to doing the will of God. Like his disciples found out in John 4.30, John 4.30, where it says, then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, master, eat. But he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, any man brought him any food to eat? Jesus saith unto him, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. It was lunchtime at that time. And they came to him, the disciples came to him with some food and said, eat. And he said, I am eating. I'm feasting on meat. He said, my meat is to do the will of God and to finish his work. And then he said, look, you see all those people coming out of the city to hear the word of God? That looks better to me than prime rib, medium rare. That's what he was saying. And so now he's approaching Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree and he looks at this fig tree as he approaches it and he sees lots of leaves, green leaves. And he sees all the green leaves and expectation arises, anticipation arises. He's excited. Oh, look at all those leaves. We've got to be a lot of figs under those leaves. I can't wait. And he gets up to the fig tree and he looks for the figs and there's no figs. There's just leaves. And he feels, I've been tricked. I've been deceived. All those leaves should have meant that there were a lot of figs here, but the figs aren't there. It's just leaves. The leaves are broadcasting. There's figs, there's figs, there's figs, but there's no figs. There's just leaves. And he looks at those, that fig tree and with all those leaves and no figs, and he says to himself, just like the chief priests and scribes in the temple, look at this tree. It gives all the appearance that there's gonna be fruit, a lot of fruit, and no fruit. Just a show. All a show. No fruit for God. And he sees in that fig tree dead religion. He sees in that fig tree a religious system that talks about God, that has traditions, that has rituals, looks like they're serious about God, but no fruit. No fruit of a life with God. No fruit of obedience to God. No fruit of repentance toward God, turning away from sin to God. No fruit of seeking the will of God and, and doing it. Just a lot of leaves, no fruit. And he sees religion without God and he curses the tree and he curses it in such a way that the tree just does what he thinks it should do, shrivel up and die. And the lesson he's teaching is that religion without Jesus Christ is dead. Religion without God is dead. And that's the real meaning of the cursing of the fig tree. That's what it's all about. It's about religion where there's no fruit of repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. That religion is dead, no fruit, just show. But there's another teaching about this fig tree and it's brought out in a parallel passage about this fig tree in Mark 11, Mark 11, 12. Mark 11, 12. On the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. That's important. 
the time of figs was not yet. The reason there were no figs on that tree was because the time for the figs was not yet. It was going to be later. The fig tree is a symbol for Israel. Hosea 9.10, Hosea 9.10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. When Jehovah Jesus saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he saw them as the first figs at the first harvest of figs from the tree. And then came the time before the second harvest when there were leaves, but the figs were not yet, not yet. And that's symbolic, this time of the leaves with no figs, that's symbolic of a system of Judaism without Jesus Christ with no fruit for God. And when it says in Mark 11, 13, Mark 11, 13, the time of figs was not yet, that means that the time for Israel and the Jewish people to embrace Jesus Christ, to bring fruit to God is not yet, but it's coming. It's just around the corner, which is the message of Romans eleven twenty five. Romans eleven twenty five. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. And as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodly just from Jacob. This is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. During this time, it's not the time of the figs to appear on the fig tree, there's another tree giving fruit, and that other tree is the tree of the Gentiles. And as soon as that harvest is finished of the Gentiles coming to God, then it's gonna be the time for the fig tree of the Jewish people to come as fruit saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cursing of the fig tree is a cursing of a religion that does not bring fruit to God, does not bring repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Some anti-Semites see the cursing of the fig tree in Matthew 21 as God permanently cursing Jewish people or Israel. And they say Israel will never come to God. That's not true because of Romans 11.1, Romans 11.1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknow. It's just not right now. It's not the time of the fig trees, but it will come. And when it does come, it will be Zechariah 13.9, Zechariah 13.9. I'll bring the third part through the fire, and we find them as silver as refined. We'll try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name. I'll hear them. I'll say, it's my people. They shall say, the Lord is my God. The time of figs for Israel will be when the Jewish people look on Jesus Christ, whom they have pierced, and call him Lord, saying, the Lord is my God. And that will be the time when Jesus Christ will look on the Jewish people and say, it's my people. What a day that's gonna be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for not casting away your people who you foreknew. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for returning to the place of great danger to Jerusalem for us. Thank you for not counting your life dear unto yourself and having none of those threatening things move you away from going to finish your course, Lord, to die for our sins and bring us to glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. That's P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.